then the other thing is just like, it's still a transaction at the end of the day, right? Even no matter how meaningful it is. And we can get caught up in, and I write about this some in the chapter on the nonprofit sector. We can sort of get up, caught up in thinking that like our job is synonymous with the cause and that that means we have to sort of fight to perpetuate our job rather than to, you know, win the victory for whatever the cause is that we're fighting for. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rodney Evans. Hello, everyone. We are also joined today by Sarah Jaffe, a independent journalist whose writing on labor, inequality, and social movements has appeared in The New York Times, The Nation, The Atlantic, and beyond. Sarah is also co-host of The Belabored Podcast, which is a great name, and an author whose most recent book is called Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone. Sarah, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. On today's episode, we're going to talk about work not loving you back and the labor <laughs> of love myth. But before we unpack that, we will check in to get we present. We'll check in. Uh, like we always do, today will not be the first time ever that we don't do a check-in round. And by now, all of you know why we do this. So just yell in your car right now all of the great reasons for a check-in <laughs> round so that I can skip it. Our check-in question for today is, what would you do with your time if you didn't have to work? Apropos <laughs> of our esteemed guests writing. So I will go me, then Aaron, then Sarah. If I didn't have to work, I would just do more of all the things I do when I'm not working. So I have a lot of interests and a lot of hobbies that include things I've talked about on this show, like reading tarot and playing music and doing DIY projects in houses and um, spending time trying to train my very poorly behaved dogs and um, traveling and hiking and being in nature. And and if I weren't working, I would just do that stuff the four days of the week that I don't do that stuff. And that would that would pretty much be it, I think. And and probably that would lead <laughs> to other ancillary hobbies and 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 spin outs. I've been thinking about this one for most of my career, actually. So I think the first thing is that I would probably do a lot of what I'm already doing, but more abrasively. So I think... <laughs> Can you I be think, more abrasive? Okay, stop. <laughs> so I think I think just more, even more choosy about who to partner with, who to, who to you know, coach and spend time with. I, I still really care about this work, so I don't think I would take that out of my life entirely. It would just be way more of a one-way ticket to doing it doing it right and with full commitment. I also would love to do more surfing, which is hard from Colorado. So there probably is going to be a bit of that in the mix. And Britt and I have long-standing visions of creating like community. So possibly building some kind of community space or refuge depending on how we do on the climate crisis that brings people together in a kind of cooperative self-managed environment it would be super fun as well. Nice. Sarah, what about you? All right. So this is like my question. This is I, I totally put this in the book and I love to ask people this because you find out so much about people when you ask this question. So for me, yeah, I mean, some of it is like I would do more of the things that I already do, which is everything from also reading tarot, knitting, I'm a big knitter, to wandering around by myself in whatever city I happen to find myself in and figuring out fun, strange places to visit. And after the pandemic, the thing that I cannot get enough of is spending time with the people that I was not allowed to see when we were mm -hmm. all in lockdown. 
And yeah, and I think, you know, the, the question, the way I'm thinking about it this morning, actually, is it sort of opens it up to like, what would I do with my time if I didn't have to work versus like, what would I do with my time if like nobody had to work? Mm. Yeah. Because like, those are interesting questions too, right? If I just suddenly become independently wealthy, then I'm probably going to feel much more obligated to contribute to the way that we want to change the world. And so I probably do even more political work and activism and volunteering and stuff that I do. And if tomorrow I woke up and we have abolished capitalism and we're all living in fully automated luxury communism and we can all just chill, I think, you know, we'd have a lot more fun because we'd all not be working and we would all be able to sit around sipping tea and knitting and eating good food. And I would get better at cooking. That's a thing. (laughs) I love it. So today's topic is love, labor, and what happens when they smash against each other. So I'd like to start by asking you, what first drew you to thinking and reporting on labor and labor movements? Because your Twitter bio reads, labor journalist before it was cool. <laughs> so so how'd you get the drop on everybody? And what sparked your interest in the beat? So, I mean, the thing is, I, I didn't, it, it's, that's like kind of grumpier than it needs to be at this point. But also it's kind of true that like my, my joke, especially since the pandemic began, is like everybody is a labor reporter now, right. except like they're not, of course, because people are not becoming like in-depth sort of focused beat reporters on the history of labor and the labor movement and labor law in the US or the UK or wherever I happen to be at the moment. People are just sort of writing shallow trend pieces about what's happening in the workplace right now that don't have a lot of awareness behind them. And so, you know, I, by the time I started thinking seriously about like what I would do as a political journalist going out into the world, it was 2007, 2008. And I don't know if y'all remember those years, but um, there was kind of a massive collapse of capitalism happening. And, And I was already interested in writing about work And I was already sort of aware of the lack of labor beat reporters in the press the way they are maybe had been 40 years earlier. And then, you know, the the Great Recession brought that to the fore even more that there was really there were a couple of people that I could think of that were doing the kind of in-depth reporting that I wanted to see. And that was Liza Featherstone and Barbara Ehrenreich. And that was kind of it. And so I was like, all right, so there's clearly a need for more people to be doing this thing because it looks like nobody's doing it. And it was a fight to get to write those stories at first and um, still sometimes can be. So Mm -hmm. I have to convince editors that the thing that I think is an important story is actually an important story or that the way that they're telling the story that is important is wrong, actually, um, which nobody likes to hear. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And... Yeah, so that was 12, 13 years ago now, and I've been doing this more or less full-time since I finished grad school, which was 2009, and mostly that's been as a freelancer, which has some upsides and some very significant downsides, as your listeners probably know. Uh And... Yeah, so it's been tough, but there are more of us now, which is great. There are some wonderful people who have come into the field since I've been doing it. People like Alex Press, Kim Kelly, Connor Lewis. They're just like, I've got like colleagues now, which is great. We can like, you know, 
reality test things and and gut check each other and and sort of be like, are you covering this cool? Then I don't have to. You know, my colleague Michelle Chen and I, who do the Belabored podcast together, especially do a lot of that because you know it'll be like, oh, okay, you're on this. Then I don't need to be on this. Michelle's got that. I can do something else. And that, I mean, there's still not nearly enough of us, but it feels at least a little bit more like there's a, an actual labor beat again. Thank goodness. I want to dial into the to the title, Work Won't Love You Back, uh, because it almost sounds like a little bit of tough love advice that someone would give a friend, <laughs> right, who's pining after the wrong person. Like, uh, you know, they're just not that into you. Um, <laughs> Work, it's just not that it's into It's really you. not. Right. <laughs> Why do we need to be told this in the first place? Like, what's going on that's underneath that title? Yeah, I was so interested in that very question, right, that why do we sort of expect to find jobs that we will love, or at least some of us expect to find jobs that we'll love, because that obviously isn't a universal part of people's working experiences, but it is a big one. It's a fairly common one, and and that's uh, a common sense idea, and, and this is where I get really wanky in the way that the Italian thinker and communist organizer Antonio Gramsci meant common sense is like the ideas that are sort of saturated into society to a point where they do exercise sort of power. Mm -hmm. So, you know, something that's common sense is like America is good, but also when that's challenged in ways like the, you know, these big panics about teaching critical race theory in schools, like you see what kind of, what kind of meltdowns like challenging the common sense can cause and challenging the idea that like work is something that should be fulfilling and meaningful. I've I've had a few people melt down at me, not too many, but a few (laughs) because it's really hard when these things are, are so ingrained that it's not just like you had to learn it. You just sort of absorb it from the ether because it's everywhere because it's that accepted. Well, I wonder maybe if you could unpack what you think is the common sense around that for for everyone so that we have a common ground in terms of what do we believe about work and our relationship to it and if it should love us and we should love it like what <laughs> how would you articulate the core conceptions that we hold yeah so in the book i call it the labor of love myth and it's this idea that work is something we do because as humans we sort of inherently need to do work to find meaning, which is something that like, if you pull apart, right, it's got several bits. Like, I do think most humans want to live a meaningful life. I was actually having this conversation with a good friend the other day who's like, now he's doing a good job and he's in this in a trade and he's sort of like, okay, I've got a good job. Job is fine. But like, I still want meaning in my life. And those kinds of conversations are, are, again, the really interesting ones to have, I think. But this expectation that the place we will find that meaning is also the thing that we do in order to put a roof over our head and pay the electric bill on this very loud refrigerator behind me and buy the things that we want to buy in our spare time. That's not actually like a really old concept. It's actually other than a few types of work, a fairly recent expectation for most people. And so that was the history that I was sort of poking at in this book and trying to figure out like, okay, when did people start expecting 
all of this from their jobs. And it was funny because after I wrote the book and the book came out, I was doing a book event with my friend Dave Zirin, who's a wonderful sports writer. And he sent me this article that somebody had found from like 1980 from, it's like the St. Petersburg Times, I think, that was like about workaholism. And if you Mm -hmm. read it, and the description of workaholism just sounded like what like a job ad expects now, right? It's like mm. you're more dedicated to your job than your family and you spend all your extra time at work. And like, you know, this article in a major mainstream newspaper, this was not like a little lefty publication, right? Was like, this is bad, actually. Like this is this is strange and and an addiction akin to alcoholism. And mm. now, 40, 41 years later, that's just the norm. Mm-hmm. So something has changed here in the common sense, right? And that's sort of the way that happens is actually through material changes in the shape of work itself. And that is based in the material changes in the shape of capitalism itself. So shifting from an industrial economy, right? Where like you go to a job in a factory and and you probably don't expect that you're going to love it. Or like my friend who is an electrician, he's not particularly like he doesn't hate the job. He doesn't love the job. It was not like whatever. It was just like, yeah, this is a thing I can do. It's useful and it pays me decently. And then I can leave it at work when I leave at the end of the day. That kind of thing, that takes up a much smaller part of the workforce mm-hmm. than it used to, right? Especially the industrial job. And instead, what filled in the gaps are jobs in services, everything from retail to healthcare to you know, public relations and finance. So all of these kinds of jobs have require different emotional relationships to the job. They require different amounts of um, sort of ourselves to be brought to the job, right? When I, if you're working on an assembly line, you don't have to smile at the car as it comes past you. But if you're working in a restaurant, you have to smile at the customer no matter what they say to you, right? And that kind of expectation carries different weight. And so, you know, this comes along with other things like the changes in education levels and the the thing that the people who, you know, got the job in the factory did was send their kids to college so their kids didn't have to work in the factory. And they're like, oh, great, kid, you can can do whatever you want to do, right? That was a common thing. That was certainly something I heard from my parents when I was growing up in the 80s. And yet, you actually can't do whatever you want to do, it turns out. <laughs> there are a lot of <laughs> obstacles to that. And also, even when you get to be to the point where you are doing what you want to do, like I am doing what I want to do, right? I, I have a pretty cool job. I mean, I don't have a job, but I have a pretty cool work, industry, career. I get to write books and talk about them and do interviews with people. And yeah, and it's still exhausting and it's still a job at the end of all of that, at the end of all of the sort of dream job stuff. And I deal with the same sorts of garbage from bosses sometimes as I did when I was waiting tables. Yeah. Yeah. I I kind of want to walk further down this whole meaning road with you because <laughs> I I think it's really interesting. And and here's my question to you. I'm going to level for you my fundamental belief about this and then I want you to tell me. Uh, why it's wrong. Um, so, so here, here's what I have always believed about work and, and still do, or at least I have since I got out of the jail that was investment banking. Um, congratulations. Thank you very much. It was, it was an important bound toward freedom in my life. Um, so I believe in 
work that feels meaningful. And I believe in my work having meaning in so far as I am able to contribute in a way that feels useful to me. And the way that I bifurcate that is that like, that does have to do with the meaning of my life, but only in an ancillary way. So like, I sort of have this compartmentalization that within the container of work, I do want and expect there to be meaning. And if there weren't, I wouldn't do it. And also it is not a one for one with like the meaning of my life or what my identity is. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, there's a few things to unpack with that, right? One of them is, of course, as I said, that like most of us don't actually get to make those choices. It took me a very long time, a lot of school, a lot of debt to actually scramble my way out of the service industry and actually get to do journalism. And then surprise, surprise, I'm still broke. (laughs) Two successful books, still not making a lot of money. And so, you know, there's, there's one thing there, which is just like, it's an actual lie that most people can sort of choose to do what they love. Um, mm, that's true. Agreed. Just like 100% true as a fact of, again, the shape of capitalism requires a lot of people to do a lot of crappy work. Some people work in Amazon warehouses. They don't love it. No matter how many billboards Amazon puts up with signs that say, get a job delivering smiles. Sure. The job still sucks. Um, <laughs> and, and that's, That's a thing, right? So that's one thing is like, it is on some level, a a great privilege to be able to say like, I wouldn't do the work if it didn't feel meaningful to me. Totally. Um, Agreed. Because a lot of people just have to pay their rent. And even within doing journalism, a lot of the things that I had to do, particularly when I had jobs rather than freelance work is, you know, being a journalist writ large felt meaningful to me, writing a listicle Mm, on the 10 worst whatever things for, you know, clickbait felt incredibly meaningless to me and actually was like, in some ways, like more soul killing because like when I was waiting tables, I didn't delude myself into thinking that I was doing anything more meaningful than bringing people food, which is right. Bringing people food is not a bad thing to do with your day. I do miss those days of being like, this is, this is a transaction I can complete. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right. There was nothing, I was not doing anything like harmful to the world by bringing people food, but like, I also didn't expect it to mean a lot to me. I had to mm-hmm. smile and pretend to my boss that I found it incredibly meaningful to like deliver plates of sushi, but whatever. But like the way that this story gets told is that it is your fault if you are not doing something that feels meaningful to you and you are not trying hard enough if you don't love your job. And so the solution is try harder to love your job, even when the conditions of your job are crappy. And again, that's something that is true, whether you are doing the thing that you always wanted to do, or whether you are doing the thing that was the job you could get to get by in all of those situations, right? The pressure to like your job and show up with a smile is on some level pressure to sort of swallow whatever misgivings you have about whatever is going on. Sure. Yeah. So, so like that's sort of one big point is that I'm concerned about making the world better for all of us, not giving sort of individual advice on how to maximize your personal utility. That's what the book is about. And then the other thing is just like, it's still a transaction at the end of the day, right? Even no matter how meaningful it is. And we can get caught up in, and I write about this some in the chapter on the nonprofit sector. We can sort of get caught up in thinking that like our job is synonymous with the cause. And 
that that means we have to sort of fight to perpetuate our job rather than to, you know, win the victory for whatever the cause is that we're fighting for. And those are many and <laughs> many ways that that things get tangled and complicated. So, you know, but I'm agnostic on how people should feel about their jobs. Like I I hope that in my ideal world, everybody gets to make choices that bring them meaning. And I think we accomplish that by giving people more time and space away from work, not in sort of encouraging people to go out and find a job that feels meaningful because like as things stand right now, that will not be possible for everyone. So that will just be me giving advice to people who probably look like me and have advanced degrees and not not too much debt rather than giving advice that is actually like broadly meaningful to the majority of the workforce. And that's even just talking about the US, not to mention the rest of the world where the things are actually made that are no longer made in this country. So so the real question of of like what do we do here is one that um that my answers tend to be like how do we actually solve the bigger problem so that like everybody gets to have a good life rather than like how do I individually make sure that my life is better. Often that comes with, you know, unionize your workplace so that you have some more power on the work on on the uh, job. But, you know, yeah, those I, are things that you can do that are both good for you personally and also good for changing the world. I, you know, I do, I feel quite called to talk about the future of this tension and how we resolve it. But before we do that, I almost want to go backwards, mm-hmm. which is where what are the what are kind of the originating cultural forces, economic forces, political forces that fed into the current state and ideology? So where did this come from uh, in in your view, and how much of that did you have a chance to cover in the book? Yeah, so I went sort of digging and poking through um these narratives and and where do they go back further than, say, nineteen seventy five? about loving your job. And that's why I divide the book into two halves. One, The first half is about care work and the second half is about creative work because these are broadly the places where we have expected people to do it for the love of it rather than for money for mm. quite a long time. Mm-hmm. So, right, so the, the book starts off with the unpaid work that is still done in the home mostly by women and the pandemic sort of really, really, really not just sort of underlined for us how much of that work is still done by women and all of the lopsided ways that that has shown up in everything from people quitting their jobs or losing their jobs to daycare crises, uh, caring work, the ongoing battle about what's going to go into this freaking stimulus bill that may or may not ever pass Congress, (laughs) which I'm so tired of talking about. Oh my God. And that work, that expectation rather that women will be responsible for the caring work because they were naturally good at it, that in turn shaped what jobs like teaching, nursing, but also retail, food service, the service industry writ large will look like because this is what we expect of women. And what I'm arguing in in essence is that these as these jobs become a bigger and bigger part of the economy, as women become a bigger and bigger part of the workforce, they are mostly still in what we think of as pink collar jobs, right? Some of us get to be in formerly male dominated fields, but 
largely women in the workforce are still in pink collar jobs, right? Teaching is still 70 something percent female. Nursing is still 90 something percent female. So things like that. And so as it becomes a bigger and bigger part of the workplace, of the workforce, these expectations become more and more common, right? So that's part one of the book, essentially. And then part two, I look at the way that we have talked throughout history about art and artists and creative work and how that has also spread from, you know, the expectations of of somebody who's a painter or a sculptor and they just do it because they love the art and they absolutely must create to the reality of today's, you know, Damien Hirst and Jeff Koons and the rest of them who have like literal factories where their things are produced and they do very little of the work. <laughs> <laughs> but also to like working in public relations or advertising or tech, right? Being, I write about video game programmers in the book, right? These fields that we don't necessarily think of as that close to being, you know, a painter in a studio, but these same sort of myths about creative work that you love your job and you'll do your job because you love it. We saw a lot of this recently actually come to the fore in the the possible film industry strike that was looming. They did um, settle and not actually go on strike, but a lot of the conversation that was happening around, you know, film crew workers who were working incredibly long hours. Somebody in the union f- created an Instagram page that was IA Stories, IATSE is the union, mm-hmm. and they were just telling, you know, people would just send in their story about, you know, this is what happened. I had to work this long. I fell asleep behind the wheel because I was working these, you know, 16 hour shifts and, you know, constantly, right. The thing that they always heard was like, well, somebody else would love to have your job. Somebody else would be grateful to have your job. Aren't you excited about working in film? Aren't you excited about working on this cool TV show? Like, aren't you grateful to be here? And they were like, well, yeah, but I also want to be able to like see my kids and not be so exhausted that I get in a car wreck on the way home. So these kinds of issues Again, we see them spread as these things become bigger and more prominent parts of the economy. And as the other part of the economy that was the job that you were not expected to love has shrunk, been sort of outsourced or automated away. You've started um, articulating some of the ways in which this sort of labor of love thinking gets weaponized. And, you know, there's some Mm -hmm. scarcity mindset and there's some, (laughs) frankly, like threatening that goes on in workplaces (laughs) to keep people... um, to keep people motivated to not disrupt or not make different choices. Um, mm-hmm. Talk a little bit more about, about that and and what are some of the tactics that, that you see out there and that you'd like to see less of? <laughs> yeah, I think it's really telling that a lot of these big labor battles lately have been around time. Mm-hmm. That and we're seeing this is everything from again from factory workers at like John Deere and Nabisco, but particularly in the IATSE strike, also in a lot of these healthcare strikes and near strikes that we've seen. A lot of the question is about time and how much time people are spending at work and how much sort of forced overtime and more do more with less they're expected to do. So it's it's not always just a question of pay, right? Although sometimes it is like you're, you should be grateful to get paid to do this at all, right? Mm-hmm. But also sometimes it's like, oh, but we need you to stay later. And we need you to, again, we need you to keep going and we're just going to keep the shoot going all day and we're going to work through lunch and you just love it because you're working on, you know, whatever Netflix show or, or whatever feature film, those things are exciting. So we're going to keep you working all day. There's yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I've literally had editors say to me, like, well, you know, somebody else will do it if you don't. So, you know, I, I 
have been doing what I do long enough that I tend to ask for more money than people mm-hmm. offer me at first. And I will say, you know, that is that is not my rate. I need to get paid more. And then there's always the risk that they will turn around and go ask somebody else who will ask for less, right? Mm-hmm. That these are real challenges. And, you know, one of the story that I did years ago was also actually about the entertainment industry. I was talking to TV producers on like reality and and sort of quasi unscripted, but actually very scripted, you know, television. And yeah, they were just like, oh yeah, we would just work like all weekend long and just never go home. And it was always this unspoken thing of like, or sometimes very spoken thing of like, well, if you don't do it, somebody else will. And mm-hmm. somebody else is always going to try to get into this field. The entire existence of the unpaid internship, right? Exists to prove this, right? Of that course, people will literally do the work for free sure. in order to get the chance to maybe get paid to do it later. What does that do? It actually brings down wages in the whole field. You actually are doing for free the entry level job that you wanted to get for money. <laughs> These have been things that have been battles for a long time. But I'm also, you know, seeing in things like healthcare and teaching, right? During the pandemic, we, you know, nurses were working, right? Healthcare workers were still there and were in, and were in some cases wearing plastic bags as PPE because the hospital didn't have enough gowns and gloves and masks. People were like making their own masks and having to reuse N95 masks and all of this stuff. And again, they're just kind of like, what are you going to do? It's a healthcare crisis. You've got to keep coming to work. So you're going to come in, even though you have to reuse this N95 mask, knowing that that's not like the protocols that we would normally hold you to, mm-hmm. to, in, to avoid infection. Nurses now, one of the big demands in a lot of nurses strikes is staffing levels. So they're always calling for essentially more nurses and lower numbers of patients per nurse so that they can have more time to pay attention to each patient. Because again, it's, it's the pressure to sort of do more with less, to spend, to see more and more patients per nurse, to have less equipment and just keep it going. All of these. And again, if, if, you know, nurses or teachers dare to make demands for themselves, they just immediately get called selfish. And how dare you do this to your patients? And they're like, well, we're trying to actually improve patient care. Mm -hmm. We're saying there should be more of us so that we can do our jobs better, actually. And teachers, you know, this this whole battle during the pandemic about like, when should we reopen schools and whether or not kids get COVID, turns out kids get COVID. But, you know, and teachers are, are getting blamed for this whole thing as though they invented a pandemic so that they could sit at home eating bonbons when actually they're sitting at home, probably trying to keep an eye on their own kids sure. while also teaching a class of 37-year-olds via Zoom. God, I did a story. I was talking to elementary school teachers in particular who were teaching during the pandemic. And I was like, how do you get seven-year-olds to pay attention to Zoom for mm-hmm. a day? For 40 minutes straight. How do you, you know, I was like, they're kids. Their attention span is like that. Um, you know, this this exhausting, exhausting thing that they're expected to do. And because the schools are closed not because the teachers are being jerks, but because like they're worried about everyone getting sick. They get blamed and why don't you care about the kids and you should just march back into the schools and basically line up to die because otherwise you don't care enough about the kids. Mm-hmm. So there are so many ways that this kind of loving your job discourse gets weaponized, but like it does sort of end up being in one of these two ways. Either you don't love the job enough and somebody else will come along who will do your job for less 
or how dare you insufficiently care about your patients, students, customers, whatever. Well, in that particular situation that you mentioned is such a lose-lose because if they keep the kids home, the teachers are accused of of not being, you know, martyrs. And if they send them in, then then they're at risk. And not only that, but when they are at home, all the people that are doing care work are now expected to show up to their job 100%, but also be running a school. So it just felt like there's no there's nowhere for this to to work. If you like what you're hearing, a review would mean so much to us or forward the show to somebody who needs to hear it. So, Sarah, I've been thinking a lot as you've been kind of teeing this up and and starting to to scratch (laughs) at the future about two things. One, the great resignation and and the fact that not everybody is back to work and a lot of people, particularly, Mm -hmm. you know, people in certain kinds of industries are just fed up and kind of over it yeah. <laughs> and, and not, <laughs> yes. not necessarily subscribing to, to, to this ideology anymore. Yeah. And at the same time, in the midst of the pandemic, we saw a real acceleration in the DAO space, decentralized autonomous organizations and NFTs with artists mm-hmm. and community-centered work, like really picking up steam. It's obviously still very fringe and not very well understood by the mass market, but I can see the the lining of of a future where a lot more people both in creative work and care work maybe don't work for a boss at all how are you thinking about all these forces and trajectories moving into the future and what do you expect to see here is there a clash brewing is there a possible you know sense of hope i try to be hopeful despite all of the evidence to the contrary I think one of the things that happened, and like I, I keep saying this, and I wrote this in an article fairly early on in the pandemic, as it would turn out, that what COVID did was sort of pull the veil away from this coercive core that is true of, again, all work, that we don't do it because we want fulfillment and joy. We do it because we have to in order to pay the bills. And so- you know, what the pandemic did broadly was split the workforce into three parts. There were people who were still going to work and their jobs had just gotten a whole lot more dangerous, right? And that's everybody from healthcare workers to fast food workers to people who are working in these food processing plants. When I'm talking about like the fact that Frito-Lay, Nabisco and Kellogg workers have all been on strike and the Kellogg workers are still on strike this year, right? These are all people who were also essential workers and they were still going to work every day in the pandemic and they were making free and Oreos and Kellogg cereals and all of these things that we all bought in mass and had shipped to us from Amazon or whatever. And so that's one, right? That's the, the core of people whose jobs just continued as they had been before, but shittier and with maybe some protective equipment. Then there's people who like, well, I already worked from home, but people broadly office workers who could do their jobs from home, Right. And that also included teachers who are now suddenly teaching from home, in which case, like your home suddenly becomes your workplace, your boundaries have all gone to hell. Um, You're trying to do your job while you're, again, trying to make sure that your child is doing their Zoom school over here and making sure that everything else is taken care of and also, you know, worrying about getting COVID every time you leave the house. And then there's people who just got fired. And so, you know, there are a lot of layoffs. I mean, the the chart, I remember that, you know, that I being a labor reporter, I follow the jobs data every week. And like the first week of lockdown, the the layoffs number, the chart just went like straight up. And it was 
just the first time, the worst it's ever been in history. And that's, we're talking like including the Great Depression, just like that many people fired at once. Um, so when we're talking about like the service industry and these places not being able to get workers back, like you have to remember that like they fired people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I, I understand why, because like the government did not decide to do a lot of its support for small businesses like that through, I mean, it, it essentially supported working people through the unemployment system. So businesses were incentivized to fire people. There was like some degree to that, that they couldn't do anything about either. But nonetheless, you know, if your boss just fired you at the beginning of the pandemic, you don't particularly feel that pressed to go running back to the same restaurant, you know? And maybe you tried to find another job and maybe you did find another job doing something that you could do from home or doing something that you kept doing, but was slightly safer than getting breathed on by customers in a restaurant. You know, particularly in places like I, I just was driving across the South and it's fascinating to sort of watch the mask mandates change and the everything change as you get further down. Now I'm back in New Orleans where there is a citywide vaccine mandate for um, going into restaurants and people are wearing masks and it's like sort of a city mandate, but outside of Mm -hmm. the city of New Orleans, it's, it's all the wild West. And so, yeah, particularly in those places, like I can imagine a lot of food service workers in particular looking at that and going, no, I'm going to try to find something slightly less likely to, you know, kill me. And, you know, again, I, I have a certain affection for this industry having worked in it for 10 years of my life. Sure. And I never, ever, ever want to go back to it. <laughs> and, and like, you know, I, I understand why people are done with an industry that pays them very little and you rely on tips. And that means that customers can be jerks to you to whatever degree they feel like it and you have to suck it up. It shocks me not at all that people are over it. And yeah, the the broader questions about why people are quitting their jobs though are um, we still sort of don't know everything. And and we're, you know, this is this is one of the challenges of reporting on this stuff is like I, just like everybody else, sort of have a few anecdotes of interviews I've done, but I don't have the ability to do a massive representative survey of people quitting their jobs. But there are all sorts of factors like the continuing lack of childcare, still questions about public schools being open. There are all sorts of reasons right now why people might be quitting or leaving a job. But one big thing that everybody kind of has in common is the experience of realizing that your boss cares less about whether or not you live or die and more about whether the money keeps coming in. Mm -hmm. What would you say we haven't covered that you would be particularly excited to talk about? Oh my God. Um, (laughs) The problem is I've been talking about this. I've literally this morning, I've been going through and listing all the appearances (laughs) I've done this year. And so I feel like I have talked this book to death. Um, So then let's go where you haven't gotten to go yet. Let's go outside the lines Yeah, let's do something you haven't done a million times. um, What's next? What's the sequel? uh, There isn't a sequel. Um, (laughs) The sequel is... The Communist Manifesto. <laughs> no, I think one of the things that that is interesting now, right, are these questions. Like, I think the things that we have to dig into more as reporters and, and researchers and people who are thinking about the question of the future of work, which I always put in like big scare quotes, is like, okay, why are people quitting their jobs? And how what kind of good information can we find out about this? And how mm-hmm. many people are quitting their jobs to 
try to start their own business or try to go freelance versus quitting their job to try to find a better job in a slightly tighter labor market versus quitting their job because they can't get childcare, you know, versus quitting their job because they're traumatized by having tried to become a healthcare worker. I was talking to the nurses who are on strike at St. Vincent Hospital in Massachusetts who have been out for eight months. And they were saying, you know, they're like, the, the nurses that I was talking to are, are, you know, people who've been at that hospital for like 20 years. They're very committed to the profession. But one of them said to me, she's like, you know, now you can't separate me from it. But if this was my first year nursing and I came in during this pandemic, I would probably not be a nurse anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that. Sure. You know, and then on the flip side, you get people who are close to retirement who are like maybe just going to cash in their social security a little bit early because they just can't take yeah. it anymore. Yeah. yeah. So there, there's all of this we have like very general data that we're calling the great resignation, but where does it go from here? How do we disaggregate it? And what are the sort of 10 problems that need to be sort of immediately dealt with? It's the great resignations. Right, exactly. (laughs) And yeah, and there was, and we should remember, of course, that there was the great firing before the great resignation. Right. So, and that was an order of magnitude bigger than the people who are quitting their jobs right now. It's just that we don't get freaked out by people getting fired because it tends to make stock prices go up. So, real talk, fastest way to juice your company's stock prices, lay off a bunch of people. This is uh, depressing realities of American uh, and global capitalism. So, to to figure out what is actually going on and what people's um, real decision-making process is, it's going to take a lot more work. It's going to take a lot more reporting. It's going to take a lot more like good, in-depth reporting of the kind that not a lot of places like to pay for. It's going to take real research, which I expect will be coming out of, you know, some think tanks, some academic centers, because, yeah, we've just gone through, you know, world historic tragedy. Millions of people around the world are dead and close on a million just in this country. And what's that going to have done to us when we look back on this five years, 10 years down the line? Like, I don't know. <laughs> Unclear. Unclear. Yeah. I I was reading, I think it was the Atlantic, this article that was sometime over the summer that it was like, this is why like hot girl summer was never going to happen or something fun like that. But it was actually saying like, yeah, it's totally reasonable that like, just because you've got vaccinated and like things have lifted a little bit, doesn't mean you're just ready to like leap back into having fun. And actually it makes total sense that you're exhausted and lying on the couch crying. Mm -hmm. And this one person who has interviewed in this piece just was like the only level of trauma we have like to compare this to is a world war. And I was like, wow, Mm -hmm. yeah, okay. That's real. We've experienced world war levels of tragedy that we kind of don't talk about that way. And this is the actual sequel, which is not really a sequel to this book at all, but the thing that I am working on is a book proposal about grief mm-hmm. um, and grieving as a thing that we do not really have space and time for in our currently existing world and how that actually haunts a lot of these political issues and economic issues that are so divisive and troublesome and thorny and hard to solve right now. I think given everything that you just said, I actually want to end on a note of advice. So for the people that are listening, who maybe have a relationship with work that they're not thrilled about, (laughs) and that could could take (laughs) any different forms and shapes as you described, what would some parting words of wisdom or action or reflection be for them? Like given all the work you've done in this space, what's the, what's the move that someone who's wrestling with this can make? 
I mean, I the number one advice I always give is if you have a job that you can unionize, um, unionize your job. If you have a union already, get more involved in it. Um, because as I was saying, it is it is a way that you can both like have an impact on your job right now, but also be part of a broader shift in power that can actually more, you know, again, more broadly change power dynamics across the world, which is how we actually change things. So that's like my, my bit of like workplace advice. Join a union. I'm a member of the National Writers Union Freelance Solidarity Project, which is an interesting thing to, you know, deal with because we don't, again, I don't have a job. So I don't have one particular place that I can unionize. But instead, we're working on things like getting agreements with different publications to improve freelance standards across the board to put sort of, you know, binding rules in place so that conditions, again, are better, not just for me personally, because like my conditions on some level get better personally when my book is more successful. Um, But that doesn't help the rest of the industry get better. Mm -hmm. And so those are the kinds of things that I think are really important because again, they, they are the ways that we improve things in the short term for ourselves, but are also laying groundwork for actually being able to change things. And one of the reasons, I mean, I talk about strikes a lot because I'm a labor reporter and covering them is my job, but also because those are the places where we know what workers' demands are, right? Mm -hmm. Because like in the 6% of the private sector that has unions, that's a place where we get an organized list of what the workers are mad about, right? I I know what the workers at John Deere were pissed about because I know what they went on strike over. And I know what led them to vote down two contracts before the one they finally accepted, you know, because they said that it's there. So those are, yeah, my first advice. And then like, these are political questions, right? At the end of the day, they are questions that involve choices about where as a society, we're going to allocate spending, we're going to allow people to have power, we're going to deny people power. One big, huge thing that happened in the first stimulus bill that passed under Biden was the, you know, the refundable child tax credit, where the government is sending people money to support their children. And that was true regardless across the board. It's universal. It's amazing. I have no idea if it's going to survive the, you know, this endless stupid fight in Congress. Thank you, Joe Manchin. (laughs) Um, But that was a hugely significant decision that said, essentially, Raising children is hard, it's work, it's expensive, it's difficult. And as a country, as a public, we have an interest in helping support people who do it, which I think is great. I don't have kids, but I'm happy to have my tax dollars going to support everybody else's because like, it's a much better thing for my tax dollars to be going to than a lot of the other shit we spend them on. And so decisions like that, fights like that one, the struggle that's going on, one of the big things that I've been tracking is, is the fight over home care spending. And, you know, they wanted $400 billion for home care to pay people actual living wages to do home health care, which is, you know, a big deal. And to make it more accessible to people who want to be able to stay in their homes as they get old or ill. And that too is a big public political decision about valuing care, valuing people who can no longer work in a lot of cases, right? When we're talking about people who need home care, we're talking about people who are no longer producing value in the economy. And so the fact that we treat those people like crap in this country and don't pay the people who take care of them decently is itself an expression of of how little we value people who aren't working anymore. 
So all of these these questions that are like big and theoretical are also being hammered out in like Congress between some of the worst people in the world and some lovely people too. So these are fights that I think we have to understand as political and as bigger than like our individual need for work-life balance and childcare and adult care and all of these things. Because where we spend that money and where we put that power and who we decide gets rights at work, yeah, that expresses what we value as a society. And it expresses who we think should be a part of that society and gets to make decisions about what it's going to look like. Well, that seems like a pretty great place to draw things to a close. Sarah, where can our listeners find out more about you, your book, and your work? I, You can follow me on Twitter at Sarah L. Jaffe, although admittedly I am spending less time on Twitter these days. And you can follow me at, or you can find my website at workwon'tloveyouback.org. I've also got a very intermittent email newsletter that you can sign up for off of that website. Awesome. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. A quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us all sound good. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. Get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something. Maybe even your job. (laughs) 